Hey, church, I hope you're doing great today. I have an awesome guest with me today, Dr. David Campbell. How are you today, sir? Not too bad, thank you. First time in Indy, so that's pretty exciting. It's a great place. It's the promised land. And so you're welcome to move here and live here and be based out of here if you want to. Uh, So David is a friend of mine, and maybe you may not see it this way, but I see it this way, that you are one of my mentors, at least vicariously through your teaching, but through our phone calls and stuff, you've been a great gift to me over the last few months. So thank you for your friendship. You're welcome. And I'm excited, everybody, for you to get to know David a little bit. Um, He's going to be preaching tomorrow in church, so you'll all see this after that. But uh, David is a man of God. He hails from the beautiful nation of Canada, born and raised, right? Which part? Near Toronto. Near Toronto. So shout out to all the Canadians out there. Mm -hmm. All, All of our Canadian audience, of which you might be the only one. So today we are going to be talking about eschatology and the book of Revelation in the end times, and that can be a little bit of a spicy subject. And so um, I want to take a few minutes here on the front end before I get into questions to kind of set the stage for everybody listening or watching this as to why are we talking about this and how do we want to go about talking about it? Sort of what's the goal that we're going for here? Because I think this is one of those topics that... um, can, can people can get funky about and kind of try to be right for the sake of sounding really right or I don't know does it make sense do you agree with that yep absolutely yeah so I want to do a little bit of an introduction of you first so give us a little bit of background um, just of you and just degrees wise what tell me a little bit about your education what what, what degrees do you hold yeah, well, I hold three degrees in theology. I went, uh, I, I studied in Toronto, Chicago, and uh, back to Toronto, and then I went to England mm-hmm. to do a PhD in biblical studies, in New Testament studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was there, unexpectedly, God intervened, and I wound up starting a church on the university campus, um, which God has blessed and used to become a church planning base, actually, wow. uh, in the 40 years since then. Um, and then uh, my wife was a registered nurse, and she uh, attended the church, and that's how we met. Mm-hmm. And we got married, and then we felt called to go back to Canada. In my case, go back to Canada. She's British, uh, so it was an experience for her. Yep. And we church planted there. And... Uh, until about five years ago, uh, I um, the most valuable part of what we were doing was when we were traveling, mentoring, teaching, etc. And so we just felt to step out of church leadership uh, and launch out in faith again mm-hmm. uh, so that we could be available to the wider body of Christ. So since 2017, that's what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the last couple of years have seen a, an online explosion. Right. Um, so in our case, God turned what could have been a shutdown into good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our kind of network, uh, personal network, has expanded around the world. Uh, and uh, it's been an amazing experience. I, I, I'm, I teach at several Bible colleges in different, several different countries, mm-hmm. Canada, Greece, and India. Um, and, uh, now some of it's coming back in person, uh, the rest is online. Yeah. Uh, and I am a faculty member at Theos University, which is an online teaching platform. Yep. 
uh, and then we are resuming travel, which is why we're here. Uh, so that's our life. Yep. And you, your PhD is in what? Uh, my thesis was uh, in uh, titled Christian Freedom According to Paul. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm just bringing out uh, a book that is a practical translation of my PhD thesis. There's a long story surrounding that. I'm not going to go I'm into sure. it um, uh, right now, but um, it had sat on the shelf and collected dust for four decades, and my wife challenged me uh, because freedom has been a big issue the last couple mm-hmm. of years. Uh, so that's being published, uh, God willing, within the next three or four weeks. Uh, and so um, that's uh, one of us. I've actually wrote a couple of other books during the right. shutdown as well. So, you know, That's great. I'm excited to hear that the thesis is becoming a book because you and I talked about some of that uh, last fall. I was doing a big, a long series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we did phone calls every week for a little bit there. You were helping me through some stuff, <laughs> and well, you, you referenced your thesis quite a bit. Uh, I'm glad you remember. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you've written a bunch I of... I do written, remember the no, Sermon I know, on the Mount. I, know. I mean, I do remember the Sermon on the Mount, but You're I do right. remember talking to you yes. about the Sermon on the yes, Mount. Yes, but you don't remember giving yourself shout-outs from your thesis? I can't remember that. <laughs> That's I great. probably referred you to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' series. You did, you yep. did, you did. Yes, and yeah, you're a wealth of good recommendations as, as well. So you were a pastor then for 35, 40 oh, years? Yeah. 35 for years? For 1980 until 2017, so yeah. 37 years. 37 yep. years, wow. And you've written a handful of books. I've read, I've read a few of them. But as it relates to today, um, so your thesis was in, you know, Paul, Romans, and the law and yeah, all that. And, but but yeah. Revelation's been a huge right. area of personal study. So that's in the last 15 years. I okay. got involved with a uh, New Testament scholar by the name of G.K. Beale, right. who's generally considered to be the number one uh, academic authority alive today in the book of Revelation. Right. So it's been a tremendous, tremendous privilege to work with Professor Beale. Uh, and I worked with him in kind of converting a very, very technical academic commentary he wrote in the book of Revelation. The introduction alone is 300 pages uh, into... <laughs> Um, a commentary uh, which is accessible to people whether they've studied Greek or Hebrew or right. not. Um, but it still is is pretty weighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I published that, my wife took one look at it and said, well, write me one that I can understand. So right. I wrote another book called Mystery Explained, uh, A Simple Guide to Revelation. And yes. that I've, over the last five or six years, I had a terrific response yes. uh, from that, from people. It basically goes through the book of Revelation verse by verse and explains it. Yeah. And I think that once you grasp some things about the context of Revelation and the overall um, meaning of it, um, it becomes a lot easier to understand. It's not nearly as hard to understand as we think it might be hard to understand. So Right. Yeah, I, so mystery. I bought Mystery Explained and read through that, and then used it. Uh, me and some of my team as a kind of a the main resource for a series we did on the seven letters to Revelation. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Was, that too. Yeah, that was last summer, and so I'm really thankful for that book. And I must say, I mean, that was not that big. It's not that thick, and I can't recommend it enough to everybody watching or listening. It's a great resource. I can't imagine 
what Professor Beale's first commentary must be if that one is two layers distilled. Well, you don't I mean, have to go to the gym. You can just buy yeah. a couple of copies of his uh, yeah, I, commentary. Yeah, 300-page introduction, that's, yeah. that's pretty beastly. So you, because he wrote that, when, was, when did he come out with that? 1999, that was, I think. Okay, and then... You get, so then the commentary you worked on with him, a shorter version of that was yeah, 2014. 2014. Okay, yep. So you're well steeped into the, you know, the most trusted kind of uh, hallways of academia concerning revelation and then therefore kind of eschatology. You're really well versed in all of this, which, was, which is why one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you about it is that this isn't just me sitting down sharing my thoughts. That's for darn sure. And you really know what you're talking about here. Well, I hope so. After all the time I put into it. (laughs) But, you know, I got into it, Andrew, just because, uh, like so many other people, I kind of cracked that joke about I'm a pan-millennialist, all pan out in the end. Yeah, yeah. As a a trained biblical scholar, I thought, no, that's not acceptable. Uh, So that's really where I get into it. I thought, I've got to grasp a hold of this and figure out what revelation means because... What I find today is that so many people have been been so turned off by yes. dozens and even hundreds of false predictions that never come to pass. Right. They kind of throw up their hands and they walk away from it and say, well, I'm not going to figure it out in this life. And, you know, God put that book there. It's at Revelation and Genesis are the bookends of the entire Bible. Right. And in more ways than you might think, because right. the story that begins in the first two chapters of the Bible is concluded in the last two chapters. And right. that's the storyline of the Bible, the right. loss and restoration of the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't understand Revelation, you don't understand the Bible properly. Mm-hmm. And your eschatology actually your view of the end times, so to speak, right. affects everything else you believe, whether you realize it or not. So yes. it's actually really important that yes. at least we come to a basic understanding. And I honestly, I believe it's entirely possible when I do seminars and teaching um, to ordinary people, average church members, they get it. Mm-hmm. And they may not come out of it with, with all the understanding that I've got, but they get the basic picture. Uh, and they get the pastoral message of the yep. book, which is is significant because Revelation is a pastoral letter. It's not just a, a bunch of confusing symbols and so on. It's a right. pastoral letter, just like Romans and First Corinthians and Galatians and so on. And it's written to tell Christians that are suffering persecution and under threat of being uh, under threat of compromising their faith because of the pressures of society. And all of us can relate to that. And the message is, don't compromise. You may suffer. Uh, It may and probably will cost you. It might even cost you your life. Mm -hmm. But it's worth it in the end. And don't be afraid, because God is sovereignly moving over all the events of history, even the ones that look kind of terrifying, like some Mm -hmm. of the ones we're facing right right now. God is on the throne. And and for a Christian, we don't need to be afraid. If you read the book of Revelation or get taught from the book of Revelation, and you come out of that with a sense of fear, you've listened to wrong teaching. That's not biblical teaching. Biblical teaching conveys confidence in Almighty God and in His sovereignty, and you come out of, you should Mm. come out of a seminar in Revelation feeling joy and peace and uh, confidence that God is in charge. Mm. Um, And that's, uh, that's really important. 
that's good stuff. That's like a seminar in itself right there. So everybody listening, I hope you've already started to take notes because that hits on us. You've, you've just hit on so many little doors that I, that I'd like to push on a little further and walk through because I think you're hitting on really important stuff. And so, but before we land there and kind of get going, the reason I want to have this conversation is some of what you mentioned is that my experience has been personally. And then also in walking with people is that the book of revelation on the whole, and then is, is not talked about very much. It's not really, it, it's held, it's held at about a 10 foot distance of most people. It's most Christians that I've ever known see the book of revelation as pretty intimidating. And I've heard people joke about how revelation is either the only thing in the Bible. Some people read or the only thing they don't read. And I think that that's obviously a caricature, but sort of hits on something true that people sort of, like you said, the pan millennialist or however you said that of like, I don't know. I'm sure it says something important, but I'll never understand it. And I trust God. So praise the Lord. And I would venture to say that's probably where a lot of the people in, in our church are at is that coming from the angle of, I've not heard much real teaching on the book of Revelation. I've not heard much teaching, maybe a conference or two along the way concerning eschatology and the end times, but not not any sort of real teaching on that's substantial to help me as an individual Christian have a grasp on on this whole thing mm-hmm. and, and how to think about it and all that sort of thing. So probably most people coming from that angle of very little teaching or no teaching, but maybe a good chance read some or all of the Left Behind series. Mm-hmm. And I know that's the category that I fit into. That up, And I realized that even just a few years ago. It's like, wow, everything that I understand or think that I know about either the book of Revelation or the end times doesn't come from real Bible teaching. It comes from this series of books I read, like whatever that was in middle school, you know, a long time ago. And so this is a new area of, of study and understanding for me. And I've been learning a lot in learning a lot. Of, yeah, I've been learning a lot over the last couple of years and really enjoyed your teaching. So what this conversation is not going to be is like an overview of the different views of eschatology, kind of the main camps. I had, you know, some people say, you know, are there various views? Ask, ask David, what are the various views on eschatology? I think that's a great question, but this, you, you cover that in a lot of other areas. And so to anybody listening, to this, I want to encourage you that you have a responsibility in this conversation. Uh, Number one, I think you need to decide how much you care about this for yourself. And don't let this like totally derail you and and make things weird that don't need to be weird. If this isn't going to be a high area of concern for you, I think that I would say like, okay, then that's fine. And then don't let don't let your feathers get too ruffled by any one thing. If you do want to care about this, then I would really encourage people to make sure to take it upon yourself to study. And, and I think that this conversation can help or count as an area of study because I think it's fair to say you are one of the experts in the field. And you and Mystery explained your um, I think your introduction lays out kind of the main views. I know it's in there. Yep. I think it's the introduction. So if you want to, if you're, if you're wondering, listen, if you're watching and listening, wondering how can I get an overview of this stuff, Mystery Explained is a great, easy commentary, but the introduction itself is really valuable. And then you mentioned Theosu. We had Gabriel Finocchio here um, in the fall. We did a podcast with him. So our people are fairly familiar with him. It's been a great resource for me personally and I know some other people in our church. Um, and to those of you listening, I'd encourage you to check out Theosu. Um, if nothing else, for your teachings, you've got several 
courses on there. Doesn't I think? I didn't realize there's that many. I, I got some catching up to do. I've listened to. I've probably listened to thirty plus hours of your teaching, and I'm just so encouraged on faith, on prayer, eschatology, and then you've got some stuff on suffering and all kinds of uh, your. Um, what was it called? Battle for the Bible. Mm-hmm. Oh, gold. So good. Thank so, you. anyways, all that to say, to those of you listening, just David's courses are worth the whatever it is, 14 bucks a month or something. So all that to say, if you're wanting that type of stuff, this isn't going to be that conversation. We're going to dive in with David specifically to get his take on, um, you don't, you don't need to worry about covering other people's angles, you know, for, for educating the audience. I just want to hear your take on, on a lot of different things. So where I'm going to start is, I think the best place to start is sort of, I, I think what would be called methodology, like getting, getting some handrails from you on how do we, how do we know that we're even starting in a good spot as we approach revelation, reading it. And as we approach eschatology, thinking about it, what are, what are the proper things we ought to be thinking about in the context that we should have for that? So I want to share, we did, like I said, a series on the seven letters of revelation last fall. And the first message was about chapter one. And I used that time to kind of provide context for our church to say, okay, as we, we're not talking about the whole book of revelation. We're not even really talking about eschatology. We're just talking about one part of this. So, but there's a lot of baggage approaching this book. How do we kind of all start in the same spot? So this was my, I think my effort, I guess I could say at establishing some sort of method for us as we were approaching the seven letters at least, but I think it'd be fair to do it, to, to have this be the starting point for the book as a whole. So I want to share it with you and then get your thoughts on it. And if you think it's bad, say it's bad. (laughs) That, That is totally okay. Straighten me out here. So the framework that, that I personally have and have created for us here is that Revelation is about what Revelation is about Jesus as opposed to being about the end of the world. Revelation is to his servants. So chapter one says pretty explicitly as, a, as opposed to it's to a specific group of people at a specific time. Revelation is understood through the Old Testament as opposed to being understood through reading the newspaper. Revelation is from God. The purpose of it is that revelation is for his glory. And the whole reason behind it is that is that revelation is written because he's coming. That was my best effort. That's pretty good effort. Is it? Well, that's good to you hear. You get an A. Oh, an A. I would have been happy with a C plus. I would have felt pretty good. An A is an A's pretty good. So, okay. Well, that's encouraging. So you think that's a decent start. What, what, what else would you, or maybe what nuances would you put, or maybe what's missing there? How do we start building for ourselves a good understanding of, okay, I'm about to read Revelation, or I'm going to be thinking about eschatology. Russia is invading Ukraine. People are saying this is the end times. Mm. People are saying that Russia and Ukraine are in the Bible and all these sort of things. So I, w- I want to get to specific questions, but I think, I, you know, I'm learning. We were talking this morning about this. I'm learning. I need to learn kind of foundations, roots, principles, first things first. So what pointers can you give on how do we start approaching all of this? Yeah, well, I think the single most important thing when you come to Revelation is to— Acknowledge the fact 
And when I give seminars or teaching on Revelation, I always throw out a kind of a question and say, you know, Revelation has 404 verses. Um, how many allusions to the Old Testament do you think there are? And I'll get various. Some will say, you know, 25, and then mm. someone will say, no, it must be must be high, you know, or else he wouldn't be asking a question like right. this. And and it'll get amped up a bit, and someone will get really uh, adventurous and say 200, you know. But nobody ever gets the uh, correct answer, which is over 500. Oh. Over 500 allusions in 404 verses. I, math wasn't my favorite subject, but that's somewhere around 1.25 yeah. um, allusions per verse. So that tells us right off that you have to read the book of Revelation through the lens of the Old Testament or else you won't get it at all. Mm. And there are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than in every single other book of the New Testament put together. Yes. So that's staggering. And uh, But it's not accidental because, like I said, Revelation is... The fulfillment of uh, represents the ultimate fulfillment of all biblical prophecy uh, in terms of from Genesis onward, and so uh, so that's the that's the key. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you um, and Revelation is full of symbolism, and it ha- and and this it has to be interpreted symbolically. Um, but the symbols are not meaningless. They actually mean something. How you find the meaning is through the Old Testament uh, allusions. Right. So uh, the the left behind kind of approach uh, is a it takes everything literally. And they put a kind of a premium on that, saying, well, we take the Bible literally, and if you take it symbolically, then you're diluting the Bible somehow. But actually, the reverse is true. If you take something the Bible says literally, which is actually a symbolic expression, then you're not getting the meaning of the Bible at all. So um, the left-behind approach kind of sees all these science fiction creatures in Mm -hmm. Revelation. Uh, you know, armies of locusts, for instance. Mm. Well, the armies of locusts are a clear reference to the book of Joel. And in the book of Joel, the locusts are interpreted as enemy armies, forces of the enemy. So right off, um, we're not going to expect uh, an army of locusts to appear from mm-hmm. in the end times, so to speak. Um, but we are going to expect Satan to be uh, amassing his forces and using them, mobilizing them in some way. Right. Um, so that's a classic example of how you take the symbolism that's in the symbol that's in Revelation, which is the locust. You go back to the Old Testament, you interpret the meaning, and then you say, "Now we understand what it means." In the first chapter, uh, the churches are presented as candlesticks that uh, Jesus walks among. And Revelation chapter 1 actually interprets, he gives us a kind of a, a, a free answer for nothing off the top and says, well, that they're the churches, you know, right. and the lampstands are the churches. And uh, But there's an Old Testament symbolism in that because the lampstands were what stood before the presence of Almighty God. Mm-hmm. And the church now is the, are the people who stand before the presence of God. Um, and so uh, that's why the churches are depicted symbolically as lampstands. Mm. Um, 
the lampstand goes back to obviously the tabernacle and it even goes back probably to the tree of life in the garden right um so uh consistently for instance in chapter 12 you get this woman and uh, she's got a bunch of, uh, you know, stars and a crown on her head. And there's this dragon appears. And the woman is pregnant. She's about to have a child. And the dragon's trying to devour the child. And the child gets snatched up to the throne of God. And then uh, the, the dragon pours water uh, and tries to drown the woman. But the woman is given the wings of an eagle and mm-hmm. she escapes the the flood and is deposited in the wilderness. Well, what the heck are you supposed to make of all that? See, <laughs> right. and the, the left behind people have you know their own bizarre interpretations of what of, you know the dragons and the floods and all this. But actually, the, it's a depiction from Genesis thirty seven. The woman uh, with the stars that's uh, Jacob's um, Joseph's dream. Uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars, his parents and his mm-hmm. his brothers. Uh, the woman represents the faithful covenant people of God through the ages. Um, and the dragon in the Old Testament is Pharaoh is portrayed as a dragon. And so the dragon is a kind of, represents a demonic spirit behind mm. Pharaoh. The water that the dragon pours out is Pharaoh at the Red Sea trying to drown uh, cause you know the Israelites to be drowned in the Red Sea, mm. and um, the woman, of course, gets delivered. Uh, well, that's the Israelites crossing over the Red Sea. Uh, she's deposited on the wings of an eagle. That's Isaiah's depiction of "I'll carry you in wings of eagles," right. and she's deposited in a wilderness. And the wilderness is biblically the place of protection, uh, in between. Uh, where you came came from, which is Egypt, and where right. you're going to, which is the promised land. So that gives you the clue that the book of Revelation is a replay. It's mm-hmm. one great giant replay of right. the Exodus. Yeah. And we're delivered out of spiritual Egypt or Babylon. We come through the Red Sea of salvation. We're deposited in the wilderness of this present church age. And there are very specific pointers in Revelation, about 42 months and so on, which tell us that that's a a, um, symbolic way of referring to the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And the wilderness is the time of the in-between. That's where we are now. We're protected by God, but we're still subject to temptation. And at the end of it, we're delivered into the promised land of the new Jerusalem. That's Israel crossing uh, uh, the Jordan. And so I'll this be the last thing, and then you can, no, you can interrupt me. But um, this is why in, in the seven trumpets, at the seventh trumpet of Revelation, which signifies the end of time, uh, the return of Christ, the last judgment, etc. At the seventh trumpet, um, there's an earthquake and the ark of God is revealed. Now, where in the Old Testament do you find the the idea of seven associated with trumpets, an earthquake, and the Ark of the Covenant in open view. It's Jericho. Right. And where was Jericho? That was the end point. That was the entrance into the promised land. So the New Jerusalem is the promised land. Mm. And so Revelation is a replay. And once you understand that Mm. and can connect the dots of the symbolism, 
then it really becomes easy to understand. I mean, the woman gives is pregnant. That's the faithful community of Israel. She gives birth to a male child. The male child is identified in Psalm 2 and verse 9 as the Messiah. That's Christ. He gets snatched up to the throne. Well, mm-hmm. heck, that's, it gets, starts getting easy. That's the resurrection. Right. The, the devil tries to devour Christ but fails, and he's resurrected. And then the woman is, is, uh, is, is, is taken through the waters of salvation into the church age where she's preserved until Christ returns and she's delivered into the promised land. Now, I know that those of you that are listening to this, you're kind of, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> brief, can you say that real slow? <laughs> right. Um, you buy my book on exactly. Amazon and then I'll explain all. <laughs> but I think, I think I, if I ju- just give it at that, even at that machine gun pace, yes. it kind of paints a picture, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And in the picture, you get the idea of what I'm saying about going back to the Old Testament right. and interpreting, and then everything falls into place, and we understand that Revelation is a book that speaks to us us in our generation. It was speaking, it had to have relevance to the Christians to whom it was originally written in the first century, because the events of Revelation were occurring then, they're still occurring now, and they will keep on occurring until Christ returns. And so you say, well, I thought it was only for the end times. Well, it is for the end times, because biblically, the end times start with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. The apostle Peter at Pentecost says, this is the end times. This is the last days. Mm -hmm. James says the same thing. Hebrews says the the same thing. The apostle John in his letters says say the same thing. The last Mm -hmm. days is now. Yes. And it's hard for us to understand in the same way that when the Bible says, you know, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. In other words, God's perspective in time is not our perspective in right. time. But from God's perspective, in all of history, from the creation of the universe um, up until uh, the present, the last days are that period of time from the resurrection and ascension of Christ until his return. And we're living in those last days. And so most of the book of Revelation speaks to events, the recurring sets of plagues, for instance. I, I definitely think COVID is one of those. It's a classic example of a plague of Revelation. But we just need to understand that the plagues recur throughout the church age. They're not all uh, right up. They're not all signs that the Lord is immediately about to to return. There, There are small portions of Revelation which deal with the time immediately before the return of Christ, but most of it deals with the events commencing with the resurrection and ascension of Christ and concluding with his return. That's and and so therefore revelation becomes a what it is, is a pastoral letter to the church, which is us. Right. And we can take meaning and and uh and if we're going to interpret current events, um we can understand them. Uh I think even the current situation that that as we're recording this with Russia and Ukraine, yeah. um, does it appear in the book of Revelation? It doesn't appear in the sense that neither Russia nor Ukraine are identified anywhere in the Bible. Right. And, you know, I think I can prove that fairly conclusively. Um, however, the kind of events that are occurring are a definite manifestation of what Revelation chapter 13 presents as the power of the beast, which is a demonic entity which perverts and twists corrupt human and corrupts human mm-hmm. governments to do evil upon the earth. And 
what we're seeing in Russia today, and I'm not classifying the people of Russia, I'm, I'm, I'm classifying the government mm-hmm. of Russia, the dictatorship of Russia, is a classic example of the power of the beast to bring um, uh, hardship and, and war and death and pestilence mm-hmm. on, on people in an unjust way. So in that sense, we can say, yes, the book of Revelation does describe events like this. But if you you turn around and say, oh, well, this has got to do with Russia attacking Israel and the Lord's about to return. No, Revelation says nothing whatsoever about any of those things. Right. (laughs) Yes. That's so good. I'm so glad you just said all of that. That's so good and so rich. And so if nothing else, that ought to sell your book right there because there's a lot to be said. There's so much to be said. And so you're hitting on some some principal things that I think are so important that I want to make sure that we're all hearing from you because these have been huge helps for me in not just like, oh, now I can read and understand Revelation. That Because what's what's deeper than that is... I'm excited now to read the Bible and hear the word of God and get to know God more and be stirred up in my faith. It's not just, I want to read some text and get it. I want to, I want to love the Bible. I want to love the word of God. And I think that revelation, because so many things that you're saying are so uh, far removed from our general understanding. We, like I said, we just get intimidated. And so we, we shut it and we turn it off and there's so much rich stuff to hit. Something that you're hitting on is that you know, the, so we, we read the Bible through the Old Testament and how you explained how many allusions there are to the Old Testament and all of this. What this shows me is like, oh, so we read Revelation the same way we read the rest of the Bible, is like we read it in light of the rest of the Bible. And I think that I, I always had this, I don't know that anybody ever told me this, but sort of what I picked up in the air was that there's the Bible and then Revelation is sort of this pariah that's out there and it's something like so different from the rest of the Bible. And so you read it differently and you treat it differently. But I hear you saying and explaining that that's not true or you, I hear you saying that's not true and explaining why it's not true. Is that a good way to kind of summarize some of what you're saying? And I think that, I mean, Revelation has three main messages. Number one is that God is sovereign. Both God and Christ are described as the Alpha and the Omega, which is he he is the Lord of the beginning of history, the Lord of the end of history, the Lord of everything in between. So Christians who are suffering in the seven churches, which they were, they were under threat of persecution uh, because they were ordered to participate in emperor worship and so on. They're told that no matter what they suffer, Jesus is Lord of all. Well, we need to know that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, when some madman is is threatening nuclear war, right. we need to know today that Jesus is Lord. He is still on the throne. And secondly, it's a message to Christians: don't compromise. You'll, you'll be pressured. You'll suffer uh, if you if you. Um, uh, stick to your testimony and and won't compromise every single christian will ought to be suffering for their faith mm-hmm. even if it's just loss of popularity with our fellow students workmates whatever um but christians in many countries will suffer death even mm-hmm. um so and, but the second message there of revelation is uh the reward is greater amen uh and amen. if you compromise you'll lose that reward 
So number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God understands your suffering, but your suffering is worth it in the end. And number three, the third main message of Revelation is the restoration of the garden temple. Mm. And this is the thing that people miss. That, And this is, to me, the it's the exciting thing, that in the garden temple of the New Jerusalem, it's a restoration of Eden. Right. And... But the Old Testament prophets prophesied that Eden would begin to be restored within history at the coming of the Messiah, mm. if you go through Isaiah in particular. Um, and so uh, the idea, and I haven't got time to go into this in this podcast, obviously, but the, <laughs> the idea is that, uh, that we were kicked out of the garden. Adam was, let me put it this way, Andrew, Adam was given a commission to extend the boundaries of the garden to the ends of the earth because the rest of the world was barren. Uh, And the commission was to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so he failed in the commission through disobedience and the guard got kicked out of the garden. And so the presence of God on earth uh, seemed to be non-existent, except it wasn't because the very next story is Cain and Abel get invited to a sacrifice by Mm, God in his mercy. And in spite of the fact that that worship service didn't go too well. Um, Nevertheless, through the book of Genesis, you get little altars and manifestations to Jacob, you know, and so on, uh, of the presence of God, Bethel and whatnot. And then, uh, then it gets stronger. You get the the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy mm-hmm. of Holies, and you get the presence of God restored. But it's only in this little one cubic space, right. and only one man once a year can access it. Right. And then at Pentecost, right. the temple of God in heaven kind of falls down on the city of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and the presence of the Holy Spirit that was confined within that cubicle mm-hmm now fills each one of us so that we become one man, one woman, mobile tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. And and then Jesus gives the Great Commission. Mm. And the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is actually the Jesus consciously taking up God's command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, extend the garden. Jesus is saying, "Go go and disciple all nations. Because Jesus is going to extend the garden to the ends of the earth where Adam failed. The garden is the kingdom, right? Yes. And that's why Matthew twenty four fourteen says that Jesus will not return until the gospel of the kingdom has gone to every ethnos, every people group, which it hasn't yet, by the way. So, um, And so at the return of the Lord, the garden is, which is, which is, uh, we are now living in a place where the Garden of Eden begins to be restored even within the church. The mm-hmm. presence of God is restored. That's the exciting thing yes. right now. Whatever, even though church is imperfect, mm-hmm. uh, the presence of God is here within us and the power of God is within us. And that's why we can pray for the sick and see them healed and win yeah. people to Christ and so on. And But we're looking forward to an ultimate fulfillment mm-hmm. where in the last two chapters of the Bible, the first two chapters are fulfilled. The only difference is the presence of evil is cast out. And, uh, and Revelation presents the end point of the story. And if you don't understand the end of the story, how can you understand the story? Mm. So that's my appeal to folks mm-hmm. is 
is understand revelation, take a risk, and uh, try to understand it uh, from a from a good teaching perspective. It's worth investing a little bit of time. Mm. Um, I mean, I've I mean, there are other teachers other than me, but I mean, I I in my case, I've done the hard work yeah. for you. You can you can go through with the you know verse by verse, and I explain what everything means. Right. And when you come out the end of it, you'll come out envisioned not just for the Lord's return, but which is what the left behind stuff tends to focus people all on God on Jesus is coming back, but everything is going to be disaster until mm. then. You know, Satan's in control of the world. God's lost control. He's got to airlift us out like uh, the president airlifted the troops out of Afghanistan, right. and it's the, it's a failed mission. Etc. No, that's Oof. all a lie. It's all a lie. It's not true at all. Jesus mm. is in control. He's Lord of all. Mm. Um, he's called us here to occupy this ground and take possession of this earth for King Jesus from now until he returns. Mm. And if that if that doesn't motivate Seriously. you as a Christian, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Hello, somebody. <laughs> that's so good. So good. I love that. That's so helpful. Um, yes, that that's so good. So I, I love how the clarity that you bring, it's, it sounds so silly now that I say it, but I didn't know I needed it so bad. It, the, this clarity helps me understand, oh, man, Revelation's like the rest of the Bible. It's trying to help me love Jesus and stay faithful to him to the end. And so that's why it's exciting to dig into this. Obviously, there's a lot to it, but it's not something that's just out there and, and in its own category. It's, it's part of the Word of God. I think the other thing that's so helpful even to hear you go and just touch on all these kind of rabbit holes of meaning that we could run down that you that you do run down in your book or your books is that it um, some of the the premise the, or the assumptions of that I picked up along the way about revelation is that it's this great mystery with that's just full of massive gaps that we have to kind of do our best to f- fill in the gaps of what things mean and what's it going to look like and all that sort of thing. It's sort of like very distant breadcrumbs and hopefully you end up on the right trail. As I hear you go into things and explaining this, these, you know, 1.25 illusions perverse type of thing is like, wow, no, this is actually an incredibly thorough, incredibly intentional writing. Yeah. And I do think it's really helpful for Christians now. It's meant yes. to be helpful yes. now. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, uh, I mean, in our Western culture, just to switch themes a little bit out of the, you know, R- Russia-Ukraine situation, in our Western culture, we face this um, postmodernism, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so a lot of Christians are... Um, you know, it, that, that's hard for them because especially if you're on a university campus, uh, if you're in a, a you know, a, any kind of uh, academic situation or media or some of these areas, um, you're liable to become unpopular or even lose your job mm-hmm. uh, if you take a stand against that. Uh, type of thing. And Revelation speaks directly to that. It says, right. you know, you can expect to be unpopular mm-hmm. and, you, and you may have to lose your job. Now, obviously, as Christians, we don't want to lose our job or become unpopular because we're rude to people right. or, you know, thumb our nose at them or something. That's that's not it. But, you know, we if, if, if we maintain our 
faith in Christ and it costs us, then it costs us. But the consolation we've got is that God will look after us mm-hmm. one way or the other. Yeah. He won't fail us. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I, I think that when when I begin to see that more in Revelation, the, the encouragement from the Lord to stay strong and stay faithful and endure and um, I love how you said it, the reward's going to be worth it. I mean, the, the seven letters, I mean, that's kind of this outline of all the seven letters is like, the, the, it, they always end with a call the to reward. looking towards the, mm-hmm. looking to the table. Like it's Jesus just saying like, it's just a little while longer and then you're home and this is worth it and everything's worth it. What I'm going to give you is so far beyond anything you could lose. So hold fast. And it's sad to me to think about how how long even I went being like I didn't I had no idea this rich love and strength and motivation was right here mm-hmm. and I was I was missing it because I was so confused about what I, I thought I was I thought I was reading something else I thought I should be reading this looking for different things I thought I should be reading this looking to understand what's about to happen in the world, and what does the newspaper mean? When all along, God has written this beautiful exhortation that he's with us, that he's real, that he's, he's, he's the alpha, he's omega, all of these things, he sees everything going on. He sees the hardship. He sees the cost. He sees the pain. He's with us in it, and he's faithful to bring his will to pass in the end. I mean, that's just stunning. And I don't want to miss that. Yeah. It's so I. beautiful. It's so beautiful. So I, these, are, these are big light bulbs for me, is that I should read Revelation like I read the rest of the Bible, in the sense of I should interpret it through the Bible. I should let the Bible interpret it. And I should expect that there's a lot to learn and that this should be relevant to every believer that, every li- that ever lives in every time period. I think that that's another thing that's gotten screwy, is that we can think that you know, the book of Revelation itself or parts of it that they're just sort of reserved for some ambiguous group of people in some certain space and time and someday, and we don't really know who or when, but maybe it's well, for us, they, maybe it's not. The left, the left behind teaching, I'm just using that yeah. as a phrase. It's right, called right. dispensationalism te- technically, but it didn't exist until the 1830s to right. begin with and was never taught before then. Right. But that uh, that teaching reserves... The Revelation, Revelation chapters four to nineteen, the main bulk uh, that describes the course of history, um, is suppo- supposedly uh, takes place after the church has been removed. So it has absolutely no relevance whatsoever for Christians of any age. Right. Now, I think to myself, well, there's something screwy with the idea that the last book of the Bible wouldn't have any reference to, for Christians or any relevance to Christians. Right. Um, and, of course, that's not accurate. There's no seven-year tribulation uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, you just won't find it. Um it doesn't really exist anywhere else in the Bible either. Uh, it's kind of a construct of, of a very twisted interpretation of four verses in the book of Daniel. Uh, and there's no rapture in the Bible. Christ returns, but the rapture is a second secret return of Christ. Jesus only talks about one return, which will be visible to all humanity. It's mm-hmm. very clear. 
and the whole foundation of these things that somehow people take for granted because, you know, they saw a movie or they read a book like you did with the Left Behind right. series of books, which were fiction for a reason. Right. Uh, and, they, and they accept it. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. Some people are just so wedded to that. that right. But it's completely unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're starting to hit on some specific things I really want to get to. I've got two more kind of general questions to help us continue to understand how to approach the book of Revelation. And, um, well, it's sort of about that. I'll just, I'll just dive into it here. You, you talked about how eschatology really shapes a lot of our life. And whether we kind of want to have a view on eschatology or not, whether we kind of want to avoid this whole topic or not, what we believe about it does matter. So how big of an issue is um, good eschatology? Well, see, I think it is an issue, a big issue, because... Uh, why, I ask the question, you know, why is it the Christians seem to be the first people sucked into conspiracy theories? Right. And uh, are we more gullible than everybody else? Well, the reason is that the, the left-behind teaching has drummed into people's heads for decades, for some almost their whole Christian life, that the devil is ruling the world, that God has lost control, yeah. that the Antichrist is... is lurking around every single every corner. corner that the the mark of the beast is about to be stamped upon you right. and uh and and really it's time to panic and so if you live with that mentality long enough you will you will begin to see you will it it's paranoia you'll have yeah. in spiritual paranoia every so time good, every time some political event happens or some yeah. military event or some economic event like barcodes for instance years ago right. barcodes were the mark of the beast um and lately, it's obviously been Bill Gates putting microchips into a vaccine or something, which, mm-hmm. by the way, originated with a pagan who wasn't a Christian at all, and he made the whole thing up. And I'm not a big fan of Bill Gates, but, you know, <laughs> let's not accuse Bill Gates of putting microchips in vaccines and equate that with the mark of the beast. Because right. that's not what Revelation means by the mark of the beast at all. At all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, people that get into this way of thinking... Um, Every time, and and as long as I've been a Christian, uh, every time you know Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon, Y two K that was going to be the return of Christ. Uh, Then there was you know the the there was um, uh, of course the attacks, the Israel Egypt wars in the nineteen sixties and seventies. There was various popes, there was various Russian dictators, and they were all identified as the Antichrist, and the Lord was about to return. Some guy made millions of dollars selling a book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. No, you probably weren't even born then. And then when, of course, the Lord didn't return in 1988, he said, oops, I got it wrong and published an 89 Reasons Why He'll Return in 89. And and when that didn't happen, he took his profits and, you know, went to Panama or something. I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, like, but the problem is that everybody... I actually have a book coming out soon, 2022 Reasons Why This Is the Year. (laughs) I, you know, some people believe that the rapture 
Well, some people believe that the rapture, rapture, quote unquote, would have occurred at the end of, by the end of 2021, because Israel was constituted as a state in 1948. Right. Jesus said, "Within one generation, this generation will see it all." They arbitrarily define a generation as 80 years, which is way too long, and uh, so that's 2028. And if the rapture comes seven years before that, that's right. 2021. Well, we kind of missed the boat, but now yeah. I hear some are stretching it to 2020. Mm. And no doubt Putin has something to do with it. And all this gets mixed into this stew. And then John Hagee writes a book about blood red moons, of which, by the way, there are going to be something like 150 more before 2100. And (laughs) everybody runs out, buys the book, sees the movie. People make money. I call it the eschatology industry. Forgive me for sounding cynical. But the Left Behind book sold 60-some million copies. That's a lot of royalties. That is a heck of a lot of royalties. And uh, so I just think someone's got to call time on on this nonsense because none of the predictions ever come to pass. Nobody ever goes back and says, oh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. And after the 10th prediction, maybe I got my whole system wrong Mm -hmm. and there's something wrong with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen. They just keep churning it out. And there are enough gullible people around that they believe it. I Point well taken. Me for no, that. no, that I, was a rant. That no, really was a rant. No, so. I think it's good. I think it's good. I think it, it it's appropriate because you're not you're not just angry and trying to prove a point. You love Jesus and you love the church, and it's a there's there are things that are uh, detrimental distractions that need to be brought uh, need need to be called what they are in in some sense. You know, if, if things are are a an unhelpful distraction, like you're saying, you know, if it's been, if we've had 10, 12, 15 rounds of something, maybe we should ask some questions, some mm-hmm. si- some system questions to, to use your word. And I think that's fair. And it's a fair point. So on that, I think a question that, that I know I have, and, and I was, I was asking people, you know, what kind of questions would you want to ask in a conversation like this? So this is a common, common question is how, how do we disagree well on something like eschatology, because let's just take everything you were just saying. There's really amazing, godly leaders, preachers, and stuff, you know, movements, uh, churches, networks that, whatever, we'll just say that David Campbell disagrees with, but let alone what's, we don't need to categorize them as this view or that view or whatever, but. And obviously, this I, this question is a good question because it can relate to so many doctrinal and theological issues. But um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, your 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 passion is well taken in that there are certain things that there's things we can agree to disagree on, and then there's some things that aren't. And I'm trying to learn how to categorize those types of conversations in my own life, and you know, in all kinds of different mm-hmm. directions. So, you know, what you just said, you know, frankly, the, the, the things that you're just saying puts a handful of really well-known, really awesome people in that category of kind of propagating <coughs> these ideas that you're saying are really unhelpful. How do, how do we well, handle let, that? Let me answer that from the perspective <coughs> of uh, the local church. Uh, and this is the approach that I took, um, that I'm not standing at the door uh, uh, assessing everybody's view on eschatology and saying, well, if you hold a different view to me, then you better go to another church. Um, but where I draw the line is 
people that come in and <clears throat> and make um, people that tend to come in and put, let's say, things associated with the restoration of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, and that becomes the main thing. And people that are really on the extreme end of this, um, that is what they think the church exists for. That is what they think the church should be talking about. Almost the point where uh, Jewish people uh, don't need to be saved because they're elect. God's chosen them anyway. Um, and that if the pastor isn't talking about Israel and putting an Israel flag up and supporting Israel all the time, then the pastor needs to be fired. And so uh, it's kind of like the, you know, the parable of the uh, story of the camel in the tent that sticks its nose in, then all of a sudden it's taking the whole tent over. Mm-hmm. So people that have that kind of agenda, yeah. I think, I, I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. Yeah. But there are other people that, well, they disagree, we disagree right. on it, and that's fine. Um, they're, they're not going to make a stink about it. There are people I've taught, I do teach in a seminary, in a postgraduate school of theology, um, where there's a fair number of students that would would lean to that background. And when I teach the course in Revelation, uh, it, we have a very respectful attitude. Nobody gets penalized. If they write essays from a dispensationalist perspective, they don't get failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, it's the quality of their research and so on that is what they're judged on. And uh, what I what what happens at the end of it is that um, they'll say uh, generally, uh, well, I think universally, they'll say, um, you know, we appreciate now mm-hmm. that there are two sides to this, right. and you've caused me to reevaluate my thinking. Um, I haven't changed my position fundamentally. But I'm a lot more open now, and I think it, we can live with that. You yeah. know, we can live with That's that. Great. Uh, and my wife and I work in churches in various countries, uh, pastorally and in various capacities. And there are a number of issues that we just are very sensitive to what the local leadership uh, is teaching, and. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't mess around. You don't undermine what the local leadership is teaching. You just right. stay away from those. Uh, I, I don't think we're working with any churches that really are dispensationalist strongly. Um, but we certainly come across people, including people in leadership, that would hold to a different eschatology than I do. Yeah. And... Um, uh, as long as we can discuss it in a Christ-like manner, it's not yeah. really an issue. But my job is to teach the Word of God as, <laughs> as I see it. Yeah. And I do think that if we get the Bible wrong, that it has negative consequences. Yeah. So I just try to do that as best I can. Um, I don't know if that really even answered your question I, or not. I think it did. I, that was really helpful and I, I think really insightful because what I hear you— I, and I'm 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 finding this in my own life to be really helpful, and, and I hear you um, underlining it that you know it, the idea of, of keep the main thing the main thing, and and then keep the secondary thing the secondary thing, and then third third, and, and like keep things well ordered. And so I think your illustration of kind of the, the the camel sticking his nose in the tent and then taking over the whole thing, I think that's a really good point because so recently 
I was listening to um, a message from a really well-known church that has a bunch of influence, especially kind of in our circles and even in our church and really great place. And they were doing a series on, or they were getting into some end time stuff or something. And so I, I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to hear where they're coming from, kind of from the first message. And they had one of their, their teachers getting up and sharing this message and really strong dispensational, coming really strongly from a dispensational um, angle. So it was interesting. I'm listening to the message and kind of came to, basically came to the end of it. And I was, I was reflecting on it and I was like, okay, you know, I, I found myself saying, okay, I think I disagree with probably 70 to 80% of either what the guy said or how he went about it or kind of like how he got to certain things. But the main thrust of it, the 20%, that was actually the main point that he was getting at was it was this passionate, beautiful, powerful call to the church to be pure before the Lord and to pray. And I was like, man, I need that. <laughs> like, amen. I, I, yes, Lord, like I received that and, and I'm with you in that. My, you know, we didn't talk, but I'm like, I'm with my brother in this. Sure. Like if, if that's where you're trying to, you know, if that's where you're trying to get me is to a, a conviction of a pure heart and raising up people and discipling people and having a pure heart before the Lord. And if what you're called to me is that we have to go deeper into the place of prayer, then I'm like, man, okay, I can, I can deal with the fact that I'm not really sure that I'm tracking with you on how you got there, but mm. I'm a hundred percent with you on where we got. And like, that's the main thing. Prayer and purity is for sure more of a main point. Yeah. And, and the language you were using about sure. or the witnesses in Jerusalem or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I can look past that and keep the main thing, the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something that I'm trying to yeah. practice. And I hear you giving that exhortation that yeah. if, if somebody's coming in and saying, you know, these these things that aren't the main thing, they are the main thing. And this is the thing we need to be all about, which is not really necessarily Jesus or the church or all these sort of things. We have to be about these more peripheral things than whether it's eschatology or anything else, that's a problem. But if we can work hard on partnering together and saying, where are we landing here on far as, as far as how do I live today? Well, I live with a pure heart and I live praying and and you know all of the or whatever you know whatever the thing is that we can agree on. I'm I'm trying to find that or I'm finding that to be a, a worthwhile exercise to go through personally, and it's helping me be much more free from worrying about most of what other people say and trying to focus on what are the few things that are the central things that you and I can totally be on the same page about. And I don't I don't see that as skirting around meaningful things. Mm-hmm. I think that it's fairly mature and loving. Yeah, I had a a discussion. I I wouldn't even call it a debate. I think it was cast as a debate between (laughs) myself and a friend of mine who holds to a a different perspective than I do. And it was put on for a a movement of churches, uh, an international network of churches, that um, doesn't itself have a defined eschatology, Uh but tends to have more people in the... They would be very influenced by Mike Bickle, uh, Uh IHOP, Kansas City, and so on. And, uh, you know, people watching it after it said, 
Well, you and Jerry seem to get along so well when you held opposite points of view. And I said, well, that's because we're friends. You know, (laughs) hello, somebody. You know, that's because we're friends, because we love each other, because he has a heart for God, and I hope I have a heart for God. And so we're actually able to discuss and debate our eschatological differences without getting out the pots and pans and throwing them at each other. But on the other hand... I have been on online forums discussing <laughs> eschatology, and I, you know, yeah. my wife is sitting, you know, those little comments that come on the side, and I, <laughs> I don't have time to right. look at them while I'm, but my wife is sitting, and, and she's saying, oh, such and such a person says, don't listen to this man, he's, this, he's the devil, you know, the devil yeah. is speaking through him, and all this kind of stuff, and I think, well, you know, that's not really helpful. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yes. So, yeah, I'm with you. That's awesome. That's uh, the first little over an hour setting the stage for revelation, what it is. I find that really helpful. I want to get into some specific things, but I also want to pause all of this because I need to take a bathroom break. So we're going to do that. You're the boss. (laughs) All right, everybody. Welcome back. Successful bathroom break. This may be episode two. This may be continuation. I don't know. But this has been an awesome conversation so far. Thank you so much for all of this. Um, one other thing I was thinking about that would be interesting, it'd be interested in your take on is that you mentioned as reading Revelation, you know, we kind of either take it literally or allegorically or whatever. I, I, I feel like um, that people can kind of say like, well, I just take the Bible literally, you know, kind of like I don't, I don't want to get too down into the weeds. I just take it for what it says. And that can be kind of intimidating because I'm like, oh, I don't want to like make something up just because I heard somebody with a degree say something or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think as I've stepped back, I feel like I've noticed that I don't know that I've ever really run into anybody who actually takes it literally. Like you brought up the locust, for example. It's like, well, I just take it literally. There's going to be a plague. And I'm like, it seems like the people who say I take it literally are also the same pool of people who will say the locusts represent Black Hawk helicopters. Or like the mark of the beast, like well, it's, it's, it says literally your mark of the beast, so therefore the barcode or the, the whatever it is. And I don't say that sarcastically. I just say that to say that's been a little bit of a realization for me to to be like I I don't know how many people actually I don't know who's actually willing to take that to well, its they, end. What's your observation? It's a uh, an absolute fundamental assertion of dispensationalists that they take revelation literally. And that people who take my position, uh, which is called the idealist position, um, are are not faithful to the Bible. We don't give the Bible its full weight. We're almost like, are we liberal or something? Because we're not taking it literally. And uh, but then, as you say, yes, the Black Hawk helicopters and all that come into it, or right. you know, Bill Gates and the microchip yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. So they're not really consistent, right? Uh, but that they claim to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to get into some specific stuff. We've we've been pretty. But l- let me just say this: oh, okay, great. that that. Taking it symbolically, and in, in Revelation, I go into this in my book, in the very first verse of Revelation, it says that this is a revelation that God has made known to his servants. And that verb in the Greek language is semino, and it means to make known by symbolic means, by symbolic representation. Uh, so actually, Revelation itself tells us through right. the wording that's in the text. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that it is to be understood symbolically. 
and then it goes into uh, Daniel's... Um, there's uh, multiple allusions to Daniel's vision of... Uh, or, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's uh-huh. interpretation of the dream um, as a model for uh, Revelation. And, of course... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and it's a, a statue and four different parts and then each of the parts symbolize a historical event. So there's the symbolic background and the same word to make known by symbolic means appears in the second chapter of Daniel mm-hmm. and John borrows that. Now that's again a lot of verbiage I'm just throwing at you. Yeah. But what it but there actually is uh, there there is sort of meaning in the text there there is content in the text itself that suggests that it is to be interpreted symbolically right. however when we and I'll reiterate this when we say revelation is to be interpreted symbolically the symbolism has act, goes back to to um, statements or uh, depictions in the Old Testament right. And when we understand what it means, uh, then we can understand what the historical reference is. So Revelation does refer to actual historical events that are happening. It's just that those historical events that are happening um, take place, they cover events from the resurrection until the return of Christ rather than just seven years between the rapture and uh, the beginning of the supposed millennial kingdom. Right. And so um, it isn't that that Revelation, but my point of view, doesn't empty Revelation of all relevance. Right. Um, what I'm saying is, yes, I can see the present developments in Russia and Ukraine. Yes, I can see, see COVID uh, at the beginning of 2022, uh, 2020, before anyone was paying attention to COVID. I said in a session I was teaching mm-hmm. in Michigan, um, this is a classic example of one of the plagues of Revelation. This is one of the plagues of Revelation. Right. Um, it is something that is, a, you know, and I think I was right. It's it's global. It's caused global dislocation. It it is a judgment of God sent upon an unbelieving world with a twofold purpose to challenge and reform a lukewarm, complacent church mm-hmm. and to shake a rebellious, idolatrous world. Right. And that's how it's played out. Um, but it's but the plagues that are there in Revelation, uh, which are lifted out of the plagues of Egypt because Revelation is a replay of the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but they're, they recur. They have multiple references throughout this period of time. So Revelation does speak to actual events. Um, right. It's just not. It's just that they're scattered throughout the church age, and therefore relevant to all Christians <clears throat> of all ages. They're not just pertaining to that seven-year period. Actually, after the church has been raptured, because. Right. From chapter four onward, the church isn't even there anymore. It's supposedly all about the Jewish people, who some of whom are going to accept Christ and some of whom aren't, and the ones that do accept Christ will then enter a literal earthly millennium in chapter twenty. Right. That's the dispensational interpretation. It has absolutely zero relevance. Well, the letters to seven churches have relevance, right. but that then you know. That that's it. Right. The rest of it has no relevance at all, right. and that's what I think is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Every chapter of the Bible 
should have relevance. And if, if you want to accuse me of saying, oh, you're symbolic, you, you, you know, you're diluting the Bible, I'm saying, no, you just taken your scissors and cut all those incredibly right. important chapters out of the Bible and taken them away from the body of Christ. That's what's wrong. Yeah. I'm tracking with you. I love that. So one thing that you did mention is that there are some things in Revelation that do specifically spell out things that are going to happen immediately, whatever that means, before the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about eschatology, the end of time, the return of Christ. What What does it mean that Jesus is coming back? And what should we expect that to look like? Well, in chapter 11, you've got a picture of two witnesses. And without going into a lot of explanation, which, uh, again, you'd have to read the book for, the two witnesses uh, stand for the church. They're clearly portrayed in terms of Moses and Elijah uh, in the text of chapter 11. And Moses, Moses and Elijah are portrayed on the Mount of Transfiguration as the two witnesses to Christ. Jewish law required two legal witnesses to affirm anything. That's why you've got two angels at the tomb. You've got two angels in at the beginning of the book of Acts and so on. Um, and, and so... Um, uh, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. They're particularly significant because Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets. So Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration are the law and the prophets testifying to Jesus. Mm. There's there's mm. a little Bible so gem good. for nothing. And Moses and Elijah reappear in Revelation chapter yes. 11. Very, very clear. You can't possibly miss it through the illusions that are there. And so Moses and Elijah stand for the church which testifies to Jesus. And the church uh, has power throughout the church age, is given power by God to perform signs and wonders and testify to Christ faithfully. And then at the very end of the church age, um, these two witnesses are apparently killed, uh, and uh, there's a big party that's held in a very narrow period of time, which is defined as three and a half days as opposed to three and a half years mm-hmm. that has gone before, which is the period of the church's witness. There's this very small period of time at the end of apparent defeat. And then that culminates in them being resurrected, raised up to heaven, and the Lord coming and destroying the lost. And so what that conveys to me is that there will be a worldwide persecution of the church. It's also described in in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, as the camp of the saints being attacked, which is not literal Jerusalem, because the word saints in Revelation only ever refers to born-again believers in Jesus Mm. Christ. So the worldwide church will be attacked and persecuted at the very end of the end times. We're living in the end times now, at the end of the end times, immediately before the return of the Lord. Uh, First of all, the gospel of the kingdom will have gone to every nation. So that's a positive thing. That's something to be really optimistic about. But at the very end, there will be a sustained worldwide persecution uh, marked by the rise of Antichrist, which again isn't in Revelation, that's borrowed from First and Second Thess- Thessalonians, and uh, and so uh, the church will uh, briefly appear to have been defeated, uh, and but then at that moment the Lord returns, and uh, so that uh, so I don't subscribe to the view 
that uh, everything will be hunky-dory and the church will establish a glorious, you know, uh, powerful representation of Christ that will even take over earthly nations and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. That's called post-millennialism, mm-hmm. and there are people around that believe that. Um, and that when the Lord returns, uh, the church will be in total control of everything. So I, I wish I could believe that, but yeah. that's not what I, I take Revelation as, as portraying. Yeah. Great. So this, the main thing in terms of signs of Jesus' imminent return is global sustained persecution of all believers. Yeah, well, first, I mean, you know, the Lord obviously warned us, mm-hmm. not even the Son knows, only the, right. you know, only right. the Father. Yeah. Um, and so we have to be very careful. Uh, yeah, there's the, no definition of what imminent means. Necess- you know, <laughs> uh, the only the only glimpses that we have are Jesus' statement that the gospel of the kingdom has to go to every people group, mm-hmm. number one, and then this portrayal of a kind of a worldwide conflagration. Now, right now, um, the church in general is expanding throughout the world at an unprecedented rate. And uh, the gospel of the kingdom has not yet gone to every people group. So I look at that, and I'm very, very reluctant to say, well, that means the Lord is not going to return tomorrow because I'm not God, obviously, Mm -hmm. and the Lord may return tomorrow. The important thing is he calls you and me to live as if he were going to return today. You know, be ready, Jesus said. That's always the command Mm -hmm. from the first century till now. But from what I do see, I don't see the return of the Lord as imminent because those conditions haven't been fulfilled. But none of the conditions involve the state of Israel. Uh, That's got nothing to do with it. God's, God's, um, uh, it's got nothing to do with, people say that Israel is the prophetic indicator or whatever of what is happening. So look at the politics of Israel and Mm -hmm. that'll tell you. And with all due respect to the state of Israel, um, and whether one supports Israel or doesn't support Israel, it's legitimate to support Israel on other grounds, but not right. on theological grounds. Right. No nation, even Israel, is special to God. Now, when it comes to the Jewish people, does God still have a concern for the Jewish people? Yes, he does. Where do we get that? We don't get it from Revelation, mm. because Revelation chapter 1, 6, and five ten takes the promise of the kingdom of priests that Moses gave to Israel right. and, and, and carries it over not to Israel, but to the church, right. which includes Jews, obviously. But where we get God's concern for Israel is in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Mm-hmm. And so you can, I, and I, I do interpret that, I'm I'm probably moving over into a different question here, but... That's great. We were going to get to this. Is that all right? Yeah, please. I do interpret Romans 11 as as, as, um, predicting, uh, foreseeing an end times revival among the Jewish people. I do see that. Not in Revelation, but in Romans 11. Um, Mm -hmm. And... So uh, there Can I interject is something there real quick. Are you and you're saying that ethnically, not politically? What I'm saying is that God has a place for the Jewish people. God does not have any particular concern for the political state of Israel. Right. Uh, I could be a supporter politically of Israel 
if I felt that Israel exemplified, let's say, human rights, democratic right. values, uh, I could support Israel. For political reasons or mm-hmm. philosophical reasons, mm-hmm. it's just I don't support Israel because I see the mm-hmm. restoration of the state of Israel as being something prophesied in the Bible, which I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't see that at all. Yeah. But I do see that God, you know, there's something of a mystery in God's choosing of Abraham, who was an idolater, when <laughs> obviously when he, when God chose Abraham, but Abraham and his descendants and and Paul traces it. Salvation doesn't come to all of the Jewish people. It comes to the elect. It comes to a remnant. It's, uh, you know, Jacob I've chosen. And, he, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and so on. And so right down through Galatians and Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul traces this out and says there's an elect remnant among the Jewish people that have always been faithful. Mm-hmm. And to this remnant, I've added in the entire Gentile church. Right. He uses the picture of a, a root right. and a, a branch being grafted into it. Right. And, uh, and he points out the fact that while right now most of the Jewish people have been cut out of the action because right. of their rejection of the Messiah. But a time is coming when God can graft them yeah. in again. And, uh, and the way he talks about it is amazing because he, t- he talks about the root and the branches and says, you know, Israel was the branch— but the Gentiles have been grafted in, and but there's been a cutting off of everybody who's rejected by faith, right? But then it says, if if the Lord grafted in the Gentiles, then of course He will graft regraft in anybody who returns. Am I am I interpreting yeah, that right? Because because the natural original tree was the was Jewish, right. and we are like an alien species or whatever being grafted into the natural uh, tree and so it would be that much easier for God to graft the natural back in again yeah. uh, and he uses that picture uh, and he talks about a time of the fullness of the Gentiles which I take to be the gospel going to every people group and he talks about a time of the fullness of, of the Jews and then he makes a statement uh, in Greek, pas Israel sotheisatai. Sothe- I'm getting tongue-tied. Sotheisatai. <laughs> anyway, which means all Israel will be saved. And if you analyze it very carefully, he has to be talking. In in Galatians, Paul um, talks about the Israel of God, and that is the church in mm-hmm. Galatians chapter 6, 16. But in Romans, he refers to Israel in that text, all Israel will be saved as the Jewish that's the sum total of all the Jews that are ever going to be saved are going to be saved. But that won't happen until that moment where there's this revival among the mm-hmm. Jewish people, which seems to be located toward the end of the church mm-hmm. age. I, I, I think you just have to be careful. We don't have a prophetic chart, right. you know, where it says this is going to happen and this year or that season or whatever. You know, you have to, there's a mystery surrounding it, and yet it seems to be something that Paul is saying is going to happen. Yep. Excellent. Thank you for all that. So you've said several times we're in the end times because that was instigated or initiated with the resurrection of Jesus. I hear the phrase sometimes, like, you know, the end times church, the end times church will be this or will look like that. Is that, 
is there is there a kind of legitimacy to that phrase, or is that sort of a phrase that kind of just is connected to some specific view of eschatology? Well, I, I think that people use this word end times erroneously. They What they really mean is the Christians who are going to be alive at either the right. supposed rapture yeah. or the return of Christ, uh, depending on whether you believe in a rapture or not. Yeah. Um, but... If you're going to be biblically correct, the phrase, the last days, universally in the scriptures refers to the period of time starting at Pentecost. And you can read Acts Mm 2 if you don't believe me. Uh, And in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews says. And James talks about, you know, the way we behave in the last days. And Mm -hmm. the apostle John says, this is the last hour. And... and, Mm -hmm and so on. So the last days commence at Pentecost, and they, um, the analogy that I use, which is a great, great one, it's not my analogy, it, it, it's uh, a, a Swiss theologian called Oscar Kuhlman, um, who was alive at the time of the Second World War, and he said, this is what it's like at D-Day, which we still know enough history, we should mm-hmm. anyway, to know what D-Day was, uh, from D-Day onward, uh, when the Allied soldiers landed in Normandy, the outcome of the war was assured. Everybody knew, even the Germans knew, that um, they were going to lose. However, from D-Day in 1944, June, to April of 1945, which was surrender, um, that that's called V-Day, Victory mm-hmm. Day. Between D-Day and V-Day, there was about nine or ten months or something, yeah. and thousands and thousands of sol- soldiers were killed. Many battles were fought. It went back and forth and all the rest of it. So he said, we live between D-Day and V-Day. Yeah. D-Day is Calvary, and V-Day is the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we live in what I call the great in-between. Mm-hmm. There's still battles to be fought. Right. There's still a cost to be paid. But we know... The outcome is assured. Amen. And uh, that's the end times. That's yeah. the last days. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a terrific uh, analogy or example mm-hmm. or parallel or way of putting it. The D-Day analogy. D-day, yeah. yeah. That's great. So Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says some very interesting things. And so what of Matthew 24 and 25 is about Jerusalem falling in AD 70, and right. one of it is about the end of the world. So if you follow in, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, um, and in all of these, if you trace it through, Jesus talks about, there's a, a, a uh, he talks about these days and those days, mm-hmm. or in this day and in that day. Right. So he's talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. He's talking about an immediate set of events, relatively immediate, where he says this generation will live to see it all. Right. But he said of that day, no man knoweth, not even the Son, but only the Father. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's saying this day you can tell. As a matter of fact, he says, when you see these things happening, the abomination of desolation set up, take flight, run from house to house and head to the hills. But of that day, right, 
And that day is associated with cosmic signs. The stars are falling okay. out of the sky and this type of thing. So he's clearly talking about two entirely separate sets of events. Now, the early Christians interpreted the abomination of desolation as in in uh, the the zealots, which was the political extremist party of the Jews, <coughs> Uh, seized power, declared rebellion against Rome, and the Romans came and put uh, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, which went on for about three years. And uh, for most of that period of time, the Romans would allow anyone to leave and get out that wanted to. Um, but uh, uh, at one particular point, the zealots appointed a uh, what we would call a developmentally handicapped man today and appointed him as the high priest as a mockery because they hated the religious system, the Sadducees, the people that ran the temple. It was a desecration. And even the Christian community in Jerusalem recognized it was a desecration. Hmm. Uh, and that they interpreted, interpreted as the abomination of desolation. The Christian community did. And the Christian community fled to the hills because they remembered only 30 years or so before Jesus had said, yeah. when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, it's time to flee. Mm-hmm. So when this happened, uh, they knew that it was assigned to go. The entire Christian community left Jerusalem, and uh, most of them went to Pella in across the Jordan, which you can see those sandstone amazing caves and um, in uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies, which okay. I'm a great fan of. Anyway, <laughs> they appear in them. Uh, and so... Uh, and then the Jews that were left were, were the, the Romans stopped allowing people to leave, and they were all slaughtered. It was a holocaust. It was a horrible thing. Uh, so, and 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 then was fulfilled what Jesus said: not one stone will be left upon mm-hmm. another. Right. Uh, and if the if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? See, Jesus clearly prophesied. But then he said, then there'll come a period of time when you will have to witness to the Gentiles, you know, remain steadfast in your witness, and that those days will run their course, and then, then there'll come another day of which no one knows, not even hmm. the Son, but only the Father. The stars will fall from the sky, the moon will turn blood red, mm-hmm. the, you know, the sky will roll up like a scroll and so on. And that is the time of the Lord's return. So you have to read, uh, whether it's Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, or parallel passages, um, you have to read those in light of the twofold, of the Mm -hmm. two main things Jesus is talking about. Great. It's helpful. I do have a... I do. I mean, I'm not advertising Theosu, but I, if you're in Theosu, I have a course uh, or a, a lecture that deals with that those subjects in the gospel. I go through those texts. I also go through First and Second Thessalonians in terms of the Antichrist. What oh, okay. is the meaning of the appearing of the Lord? 
the meeting of the Lord in the air, mm. uh, the, the who is the restrainer that holds back, you know, and is removed, and then the Antichrist comes and so on. All those things I go through. And I do have a massive long course on Revelation coming to Theosu that isn't out yet. It's like okay. 15 hours. Wow. I, uh, so you... The Lord may return before (laughs) you listen to the whole course. I don't know. (laughs) Great. Okay, well, I may... I have a couple questions about what some of what you're saying is in those courses. So if there's, if it's possible to do a succinct version, that's okay. If not, and the answer all, is kind of, hey, check are, out the course. All things are possible. Okay. <laughs> so my next question is, you, you've already said that there's no, no such thing as the rapture. Ex- explain that, because that's a really popular thing, is that the rapture is real. Yeah, most people, Where did it come from, and why isn't it a good well, thing? Uh, oh, man, how to be succinct. Um, start start with just the the eighteen whatever eighteen thirty. Yeah, so there was a man it? called John Nelson Darby. He was a brilliant Bible teacher. Uh, he developed. He had an obsession with the restoration of Israel as a nation, and he developed an idea: the idea that God had two covenant peoples, so totally separate, Jew and Gentile, and he could only deal with one at a time. And so uh, Darby believed that God sent Jesus to establish a literal earthly kingdom. Actually, the Jews believed the Messiah would do that, and they were wrong. And so Darby believed that Jesus failed in his mission, that God had to go to plan B. Plan B was the cross, the resurrection, and the church. So the church really was what Darby called a parenthesis in God's plan. It wasn't the main item. It was like something that shouldn't have happened but did. And I know this sounds weird, but this is... This is dispensationalism. This is left behind. This is the late great planet Earth. This is all that type of stuff. And and so, uh, so God's plan to make a covenant with the Jews he, and to have his son return as Messiah and rule in a literal earthly kingdom at Jerusalem, that failed. It went, something went wrong because the Jews didn't receive Christ the way that God evidently thought they they were going to. And so God goes to plan B, which is the church, but God being God must fulfill his original plan. But now God has a problem because the church is now consisting of Gentiles. We're in the dispensation not of law, but of grace now. And so so how does God um, get back to his original plan? Uh, because he can only deal with one covenant people at a time. And while Darby was teaching this, um, a young lady in Scotland who is associated with a a kind of a semi-charismatic group that went into some very bizarre false teaching called the Irvingites had a vision. And in this vision, she saw Jesus returning secretly, and only the saints would recognize his return. Uh, And Darby heard of this vision, and hey presto, this was the answer to his problem. Jesus was going to return twice, not once. No one had ever taught that in the whole history of the church. But now through this vision that this girl had, Darby got a hold of it and said, Jesus is going to return, and this secret return, he will remove the Gentiles, he Mm -hmm. will remove the church. 
And that was the answer to Darby's problem. And that's the rapture. Get the church. That's the rapture. So the church can be taken out of the way so that God can get back to his right. original plan. And, and and his system, that was the, the final piece that he needed to make his system work. And so... Uh, so today, people have no idea what the roots of this are. Mm. Darby taught, and dispensationalism teaches, that the Gospels are not relevant to the church. The Gospels were supposedly paving the way for Jesus' earthly kingdom among the Jewish people. So for us as Christians today, the Gospels aren't relevant. Hmm. All the, and the first part of Acts isn't relevant. It's only when we get to the conversion of Cornelius and the rest of the New Testament that's, that's actually applicable to Christians. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, Darby taught that, that, that for God to fulfill his plan, you'd have to have a restoration of the temple. Right. The Levitical priesthood would have to be restored. Right. And so here is this ludicrous picture of Christ returning, establishing the earthly kingdom, and Jesus Christ himself, who Hebrews says, he set aside the first to do the second, you know, that the law and the sacrificial system was, a, a, was ended by the sacrifice of Christ in the cross. Now Christ himself is presiding over a restored Levitical priesthood. Right. The point of the pre- of the priesthood and the sacrificial system was to point prophetically forward to Christ. Right. And this is what dispensationalism teaches. Well, what happened to the church? Well, the church is up in the New Jerusalem mm. during the millennium. They're hovering above earth. And he dispensationalism dispensationalists even teach that people go back and forth from the New Jerusalem, the immortals come down in their resurrected bodies to earth and mingle a little bit with the hmm. people on earth. And and the people on earth are living long lives. Some of them live for a thousand years. Uh, but when, if they die saved, they're given a resurrected body. And so they're living, so there's people on earth in resurrected bodies, and there's people on earth in mortal bodies. And Jesus presiding over a sacrificial system, the whole thing is absolute. It's science fiction. If you yeah. want to think about something that's unbiblical and ridiculous, but that's what is taught and is right. still being taught. And I think, like, you know, but see, most people, they don't, they, they, they believe in the rapture. Right. They don't understand that the rapture isn't the cornerstone. The rapture is only the tip of the iceberg Mm -hmm. of a whole system that is completely unbiblical. Mm -hmm. That's a great explanation of a lot of things. I've been asked the question as as I've talked with somebody about the rapture. Well, what about, again, kind of Matthew 24, I think it's in 24. You know, one will be taken away, one will be left, you'll be in the field and... Well, that's easy to answer because it says, as it was in the days of Noah, one will be taken and one will be left. So I ask you the question, who was swept away in the the days of Noah? Was it the saved or the lost? The lost. Who was left? Noah. Right. So that's the reverse of the rapture. Right. Right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So you've talked about um, some of the... Symbolism, which brings us to Numbers, uh, not the Book of Numbers, but Numbers in Numbers in Revelation, that can kind of fall into the do we take it literally, do we take it symbolically thing? You've already made the comment that there's no seven year tribulation. Uh, you've made a similar comment about a thousand year reign of Christ. There's the 144,000. What do we do with the numbers in Revelation? You interpret you interpret them through the Old Testament. So twelve is the number of 
uh, government. It's mm-hmm. the number of the, t- the 12 tribes mm-hmm. and the 12 apostles. You have <clears throat> them in Revelation in the New Jerusalem. The gates and the foundations are the tribes and the apostles. Multiply 12 by 12, you get mm-hmm. 144. A thousand is a biblical uh, way of expressing an indefinitely large number of people. Mm-hmm. So if you multiply the old covenant faithful saints of God, and the New Covenant saints of God together and expand the number by a 1,000 to indicate an indefinitely large number of people, you get 144,000. Right. So the 144,000 are not, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, and dispensationalists and other groups like that. And I'm not that I'm not trying to include dispensationalists with Jehovah's Witnesses, but... Um, <laughs> They all tend to have a literal interpretation of this as some mm-hmm. special group of people. Uh, actually, the 144,000 are the saved of all ages. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then the seven-year tribulation, you said the seven-year period isn't even outlined in Revelation, but what is outlined is tribulation, meaning just persecution during persecution from from the resurrection until... Right, because in the New Testament, the word in Greek is thlipsis for tribulation. Mm -hmm. And the word is universally used in the New Testament. Virtually every single time it appears uh, is clear, clearly and undeniably a reference to our present experience in Christ. Paul uses it 31 out of 33 times undeniably to refer to what he is actually experiencing as he's writing. Right. Right? It's real time. And Revelation uses the same word, mm-hmm. even in indicates a time of tribulation in one of the seven historical churches. So right. Uh, right. Uh, John says, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom that <laughs> right. are ours in Christ. John was in the tribulation. We're yeah. in the tribulation. The tribulation is... Uh, a, a metaphorical way or a biblical, biblically symbolic way of referring to the period in the wilderness, which is a time of testing. We're in that time of testing. Mm-hmm. We're yep. in the great in-between. Yep. It's great. So helpful. Okay, so the mark of the beast and the Antichrist. So the mark of the beast, we've talked about barcodes, <laughs> talked about microchips in the vaccine. The mark of the beast is a real thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a literal tattoo or something like that. So the question is, what is well, the mark might, of the beast? You might be in trouble because yeah. I noticed you've got a couple of tattoos. Yeah, you learned that today. You weren't too happy yeah, about that. Yeah, your mom probably wasn't too happy. She wasn't either. too happy no, about she that. She wasn't. There you, you go. Know. Honestly, my wife doesn't love them either. I should have known before. Well, you know? I don't know, man. You you can get them erased, you know. It'll cost <laughs> you. But. That's, that's true. So maybe we'll, we'll look into that. So Mark of the Beast, what is the Mark of the Beast in Revelation? And is the Antichrist a specific person the world should be looking out for? Yeah, so the Mark of the Beast uh, in the book of Revelation, the whole thing, there's a whole biblical thing. And again, this is the situation where let's look at the whole Bible. Yes. The idea of a mark in the Bible is very, very significant. Right. And uh, it, it, it in Revelation... The idea of the mark and the name are right. equated. Yes. So we carry the name of God or the mark of God or the name of the beast or the mark of the beast, and uh, both of them signify ownership. It's whose ownership are you in? You either carry the mark of God mm-hmm. or the mark of the beast. So if you're a Christian, you can't possibly ever get the mark of the beast. 
Right. Uh, you either are in one category or the right. other. And it, it's a question of where is your allegiance. Mm-hmm. So if you have the mark of God upon you, and the idea of the forehead and on the hand goes back to the Old Testament, right. where the Jews were commanded to have God's name in their forehead and their hand, their forehead, sign, sign, their forehead signified their thinking, their right. hand signified their practical right. actions. They belong to God. Right. Uh, the mark was protective. Um, it appears in Ezekiel chapter 9, where an angel puts a mark on people who are to be spared destruction when mm-hmm. God, uh, you know, is going to destroy the, the idolaters in the city. Uh, it goes back to, uh, obviously, the Passover uh, mark, uh, the blood, right. uh, the mark on the door. And it ultimately goes back to the mark of Cain. Right. And the mark of Cain was a sign of protection. Right. It's don't kill this man, right? right. So uh, in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast signifies allegiance to the beast. And the idea of not being able to buy and sell is uh, a reference to the uh, Christians of the seven churches were being forced to participate in idolatry, uh, emperor worship. The the whole society was organized into trade guilds, and everybody belonged to one. And if if you were in one of these guilds, the Romans came along and said, you have to have a, a day to worship Caesar once every so often. And if you don't worship Caesar, you're out. In other words, you can't buy and sell. You're excluded mm-hmm. from the economy. And so Christians were, were excluded from the economy. This still happens today in where the church is persecuted. If you have the mark of God, you're excluded from the economy because mm-hmm. you belong to Jesus and confess him as Lord. You will not participate in the idolatry, etc. If you do participate in the idolatry, you automatically have the mark of the beast, which mm-hmm. is you belong in, you know, your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. Right. Right. It, and, and so that's the idea that every single person alive either carries the mark right. of God or the mark of the beast. Everybody alive today does. Now, the good news is you can get rid of the mark of the beast and exchange it for the mark of God. Praise the Lord. But for those of us who believe in eternal security, which I happen to, you, once you've got the mark of God, you mm-hmm. can't lose it. Yeah. You'll never get the mark of the beast again. So you, you don't have to worry about, you know, um, being involved with barcodes or um, having a tattoo or anything like that. Because it's got nothing. COVID vaccine. Nothing to do with and or the COVID. You know, you can argue the merits or demerits of the vaccine. That's fair enough. But let's do it on medical or scientific grounds. Please don't involve the book of Revelation in it. (laughs) Fair. So the mark of the beast, it it's the mark, the mark of God, the mark of the beast. it's real, it's literal, it's not but that doesn't necessarily mean it's physical. And it's 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 a mark of allegiance of what what are my thoughts and my what is what are my thoughts and who who am I in my thoughts and in my who life? Who am I, I aligned to? Do I follow the so Lord powerful. or do I follow the enemy? So powerful. So the Antichrist, is that a specific person we should all be looking out well, for? Well there's argument over that, but personally I think it it is. I think I think Paul's depiction of the Antichrist lends itself more to an individual who will arise at that little bit of time mm-hmm. right before the return of Christ. 
and who will become a figure around, presumably an earthly ruler, around whom nations will coalesce in their uh, in their uh, attempt to destroy the church. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that I think there's a legitimate variance of opinion on, but yeah. I come down on the side of that being a, a, a literal person. Is that also, I'm thinking of First John, kind of the Antichrist is right. also so, kind of just and, anything against Christ. And that's a great point Christ. because because John says, and remember, same John wrote Revelation. Right. John says the many Antichrists, you know, there are Antichrists yeah. already here. The spirit of Antichrist is uh, a demonic spirit uh, which is opposed to the gospel and to mm-hmm. the name of Christ, and. I suppose the idea is that the Antichrist is the ultimate human manifestation of that demonic spirit. Right. The same way that the beast. See, so you've got you've got the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet mm-hmm. presented as a demonic trinity. The dragon is a counterfeit of God the Father. The beast is a counterfeit of God the Son, and the second beast or false prophet is a, a counterfeit of God the, the Spirit. And you, if you go through the text. You, you'll see exactly why I explain it in my book exactly why that counterfeit is there. So uh, the I've I've lost track. We were talking about the Antichrist. The Antichrist yeah. I've gone on to the uh, okay. So the beast, um, the beast is a demonic entity behind human governments. So it manifests itself in, for instance, I think fair to say. Uh, the Russian dictator, mm-hmm. same way Adolf Hitler. Right. The beast manifests right. itself, but it's a demonic power. The beast, the power of the beast, right. manifests itself in Pharaoh uh, or in Haman, for mm-hmm. instance, in an attempt to destroy the Jewish people, the common right. people. The beast manifests itself, and the same way the Antichrist spirit manifests or will manifest itself in this individual. See what you're saying. That's the analogy I was okay. trying to make. Well done. Uh, oh no, where did where did it go? Two two questions. Um, what is the new Jerusalem and like new heavens, new earth? What what, what do we take from that stuff? Like, well, uh, yeah, um, I think that we, you know, the the Bible is presenting something that is beyond our capacity to understand, but. The Bible doesn't... That explains why I don't understand it all. Yeah, or me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and that's the problem. If we do try to understand more than when God doesn't intend us to understand it all, because we can't, we'll get it twisted. But um, the Bible presents a new creation, the, the idea of a new creation. It, I think the resurrection body is the best way to approach it. Yeah. Um, the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul or some of them did in any event, not all of them. Uh, Plato, at least, arguably believed in the immortality of the soul. Aristotle didn't. But um, he just believed that when you died, you were nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the only the Bible, uh, uh, nobody outside of the Bible ever believed in the resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. No other religion, ancient, modern, or <laughs> anything else. And so... Um, uh, the idea that you and I will receive a resurrected body 
and we get a bit of a glimpse of Jesus' resurrected body, you right. know, is something that's supernatural, and yet it was tangible. Um, and so I say, okay, let's transfer that idea to the idea of the whole of the new creations. Mm-hmm. It's something that's real and tangible, and yet it's not just a improved version mm-hmm. of what we have now. So like raccoons even get Iron Man suits? Is that what you're saying? Conceivably. Conceivably. <laughs> I mean... That sounds like trouble, if you ask me. I think so. Well, so, the presence of evil won't be there. <laughs> right. But you're uh-huh. saying, I'm, the, the question I'm asking is touching on uh, trying to stretch understanding a little bit too far. Yeah, so we, I'm, we, I'm, I'm we have an idea. On the, what we're well, a lot of Christians have this idea that it's heaven is somewhere, you know, in the clouds uh-huh. out there. and. When we die, we are translated into the presence of the Lord. And John has a vision in chapter 7, let's say, in chapter 14 again, of into the and, and chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Mm-hmm. John has these glimpses into what is going on in this, in this right. eternal realm right now, right. in the counsel of God. Right. Um, so it's real. Um, but at the return of Christ... The believers who are now in the presence of the Lord do not yet have their resurrected body. Mm-hmm. That does not happen until the Lord's return. The dead will be raised, and you know they'll be given resurrected bodies. Even the lost, you know, they'll go away to judgment and the, the saved to eternal life. But the idea is that we will enter this, which is uh, new creation, which is symbolically depicted in mm-hmm. Revelation chapter twenty-one and into twenty first part of twenty-two. Um, as this city of gold coming down out of heaven. It's mm-hmm. in, it is presented in a kind of a symbolic way because a lot of it relates to the restoration of Eden with the jewels and the river and all the rest of it, Yeah, um, the right. healing of the nations. Uh, but it's tangible. Mm-hmm. It's got jewels and gold and rivers and whatnot in it. And so it's populated by people that are, aren't sort of you know, airy fairy creatures with no substance, but actually people with resurrected bodies. Mm-hmm. My mine will be at least six foot six, yes, and with perfect physique. And uh, no, anyway, that's pretty. Similar it'll be an to, improvement in what I've got now. Well, it's pretty similar to where you're at right now. Well, you're, you're about you're six, deluded. Six. Yeah, I, you've got a spirit <laughs> of flattery coming upon oh you. <laughs> okay, so last thing, last thing to wrap this up. I was going to ask some about Russia and Ukraine, but I think you touched on that well enough that uh, it's, there's not necessarily some direct relation to what's happening right now. And, it's and an if Ezekiel you, if you and all hear that kind of people stuff. talking about Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal as being Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk, please don't believe them. <laughs> I, can't around into, around. I can't explain that perfectly well. <laughs> Meshach and Tubal are places in present-day Turkey. Rosh is not a place. It's a word that means chief prince. But just don't. <laughs> just please don't, don't buy that. <laughs> don't, don't. Be, don't go smoke that Fair substance, please. <laughs> Fair enough. So to wrap this up, I think a, a question that one of the questions that I got from somebody, and I, I thought that this was well captured, like, Okay, fair enough. There's a lot going on in Revelation. I, I see where you're coming from on all this stuff. Also, things are kind of crazy in this world. And, you know, now and I, so essentially the question is that, I'm, that I want you to kind of wrap us up with is 
is essentially the, the what is that, Francis Schaeffer's How Then Should We Live? Is this a unique time? Is it not? Does that really matter? The real point being, in light of everything we've that you've said and that we've talked about, how should we how should we live in yeah, how should we live right now? Well, we should live as if the Lord were going to return. Or let's put it this way. We should live as if the Lord required an account of us at any day or hour. So all of us should live as if we were going to die before dinner, you know. Uh, And where am I at in my walk with God? I mean, this is not a time to say, well, okay, next week or next year or the year after, I'll, uh, when I've done what I want to do, I'll consider getting right with God. This is a time, you know, this is not a time to go, you know, do whatever you want to do with your life. This is a time to devote your life to the extension of the kingdom of God now. God requires obedience now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you, you don't want to be like the guy in the Bible that mm-hmm. said, oh, well, I'll just take it easy for a while and enjoy my, you know, retirement plan. Uh, and God said, you fool, that this very hour your life is required of you. And uh, so that's the message, I think. But then that has been the message for 2,000 years. Amen. Thank you so much. It's a great conversation. You shared a lot. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, As you can tell, there's a lot to learn from Dr. Campbell. Look up his books and re-listen to this podcast and take notes. Thanks for everybody who stuck around for whatever you stuck around for. Love you so much.